What's up, interpreters? I am Mynesha Spencer. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I work to date as an inclusion strategist at All of Us Together Co., which is a full-service human relations firm that certainly specializes in forging human harmony by way of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I worked formally as a National Park Service Ranger for about 13 years in a number of different capacities that include interpretation, law enforcement, and human resources. What's up, interpreters? I am NAI Executive Director Paul Caputo, and with me, as always, is me. I'm Song. I'm the NAI uh, Conference and Engagement Manager, and Mynesha, it is so nice to have you on this podcast. Hey, thank, thank you for joining you. us. You bet. I'm thrilled to be here. Woohoo. So last time I saw you, Mynesha, you were in Little Rock, Arkansas at the national, the NAI National Conference, and you were a panelist. Um, you, you just briefly described your, you know, a little bit of your work history, um, a lot of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion work. Um, were you a park ranger in your interpretive life? Yes. Yes, I was. Yep. I spent the bulk of my career with the National Park Service working as a park interpreter. Interpretation was one of those spaces I found myself truly at home in. Being able to, to tell stories, it was, I mean, just a powerful experience. And I've had the privilege of working at some of the, I don't know, best national park sites. I hate to say something like that <laughs> in this capacity because I know there are so many avid park goers, but um, truly feel like all of the civil rights sites maintained and preserved by the National Park Service are the best it has to offer. Mynesha, the panel that you were on at the NAI conference was on building bridges and, and you were on stage with five other folks in the field and you were talking about barriers to inclusion. And this is something that we really focused heavily on in, in Little Rock. From your perspective, what do you see as the as the barriers to inclusion? I know this was sort of a big topic at the at, in the panel, but uh, you know, in terms of what we talked about there, what what are what do you see as the barriers to inclusion in interpretation? Wow, this is almost a loaded question. <laughs> so <here> we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if we take a look at this, our the the history associated with our nation, you know, exclusion used to look like segregation. Um, it used to look like students not being able to go to any school they chose or the schools in their neighborhoods due to their racial identity. It looks like the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, <laughs> in America. That's what exclusion has looked like over time. And so I would say a barrier to inclusion then is, are those practices like that are supported by both law and, and social structure throughout our nation. To date, though, I would say a lot of that has maybe changed and taken on a different shape. Barriers to inclusion include um, folks who are committed to tradition and don't want to see a change individuals who um, are reluctant to innovation. But but also I would say just from a practical standpoint and in, in where we find ourselves personally today in 2024, I think one of the barriers to inclusion is just individuals not necessarily recognizing that they don't practice inclusion. But something else that I think folks should consider on, the, on in, in this space is the reality that inclusion has been misunderstood for so long. So a lot of times when I work with corporations headed by, you know, white, male, heterosexual VPs in the sort, they have thought all along that inclusion represents exclusion of white men. Whereas we know both in philosophy and practice that inclusion does not exclude whatsoever. And I think one of the barriers associated with practicing inclusion today in 2024 is the misnomer that 
we are excluding um, a, a group of folks, which is why we at our firm talk very specifically and intentionally about forging human harmony. Um, inclusion doesn't exclude, it's not pie. It's not if you get these opportunities, there are less opportunities for me, but rather there are more opportunities to create synergy, um, to co-collaborate and establish things that work for all of people, all of people. Right. And on that panel, Mynesha, uh, the panelists spoke about once you get certain folks in, in a more inclusive sense, get them into your organization, get them into management roles. One of the comments made was they're not set up for success to stay in that management or that supervisor or that director role, having a seat, quote, seat at the table, um, and they're not given any support. So your HR firm, like how, what do you see as one of the challenges to, to that issue? It's like people will say, oh yeah, don't worry. We're practicing our DEI real good. And we hired, you know, I don't know, black, brown people and younger people. And so now we're good, but there's no structure put in place to, to help them and support them in those roles. It, what are some of the, the best practices that other managers and, and supervisors can do to help support people? Song is a, is a wonderful question to explore for sure. I think this will look totally different for organizations operating in various spaces. So we are not, our firm is not interested in providing any sort of one size fits all solutions uh, to any of our requesting clients. So we, we I, I wanna at least give that disclaimer before I answer this question. We've seen hiring managers all across the US uh, work so adamantly to recruit diversity and then they do nothing to retain it. There's no sort of, equity practices in place. They don't offer any sort of mentorship or structure. There's no nothing there to to drive inclusion. And so, you know, if, if that were to change for a number of different organizations, it would look like thoroughly examining, you know, the operation that you manage uh, and making sure that it is inclusive and welcoming for all people. For example, an organization might take a look at their holiday calendar and say, like, we're going to focus on, you know, implementing or observing rather holidays or at least being respectful of holidays that are maybe non-US federally recognized holidays um, and incorporate those into our holiday con calendar or at least consider it when we go to schedule meetings. I know Ramadan is beginning here in the next couple of weeks and just think about um, individuals who aren't supported in their workspace. If you know that you have diversity on your team, you know that maybe a specific person you know, practices a specific religion, they're required to pray five times or more a day, like provide them a space to do that. Not to the extent that it's so microscopic that people begin to, you know, take take advantage of the privilege that you may offer in, in that way. So there's, I mean, just one example that I would provide, this goes beyond the, the philosophy of, hey, we're practicing inclusion, but just trying to be as practical as possible and provide some tangible, practices for people to employ. Right. I worked with an organization where consistently over Ramadan, they did a company potluck. And it was really, you know, it just doesn't sit so well. So um, I think that, you know, like you said, one size does not fit all, but there are some basic things that you, one can look at, make some adjustments and some changes. Manisha, I was, uh, you and I had the opportunity to speak for about an hour um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was actually what gave me the idea that you should be a podcast guest. It was early 
a fascinating conversation. And one of the things we talked about was your really varied uh, background in terms of your your studies and places that you have have lived and and been. You're in Omaha, Nebraska right now. That's where you were born and raised, but your studies took you to Texas at one of the oldest uh, historically black colleges and universities in the country. Uh, you've done studies in Boston and you have a bachelor of science from the university of Salamanca in Spain. I'm curious to know just sort of not just within the United States, but also living and studying uh, abroad. How has that experience uh, that that range of of perspectives around the world and around the country informed the work that you do in in DEI in many ways i think it remains central to everything that we do here at the firm um just keeping in mind that the the one thing here's what i will say it has shaped this outlook and this is something that i've kind of maintained throughout the last decade diversity promises one thing paul and that is complications mm-hmm. uh, the moment you get more than one person in a place. One prefers meetings in the morning, the other prefers the afternoons. One prefers to host an annual golf tournament and the others like, that's so not me. Um, and so it, it does nothing other than promise, you know, complications. And I think that's the, the beauty that I've kind of sat with or ran with knowing that if we know that we are going to inherit some complications anytime diversity is present, uh, then we better position ourselves to get ready to deal with those complications. And so. Rather than, I've heard a lot of people refer to themselves as DEI experts. At our firm, we believe there's no such thing. (laughs) There's no way to be an expert in all the facets of diversity because, you know, I I don't have anything other than my lived experience. And so I don't know what it's like to be a white man. I don't know what it's like to be an Asian woman. Um, And so we simply, one, practice cultural humility, and two, recognize that we are inclusion strategists. And so those experiences that I've had all across the country and, and abroad have really positioned me to practice cultural humility, which is recognizing that I come with lived experience, that lived experience has limitations, and those limitations then should be opening up invitations for other people to sit at the table um, to make decisions for us. And I would go on the record and say, you know, this idea around lived experience being lived experience from an individual that has, I don't know, historically represented uh, an identity group that has been marginalized historically over time is false. Any person breathing with a heartbeat living has lived experience by definition. Um, And so it's not arguable. And that brings me back to the point I made earlier around, you know, white men, white women, CEOs, white execs, having spaces around this conversation and recognizing that you know, they have limitations um, and then seeking out whatever sort of qualifying experience is needed for them to be successful in whatever professional industry they work within, in this case, interpretation. I, I think that kind of answers your question, Paul. But the last thing I'll share on that, that topic is when I lived in Spain, I found myself to really be experiencing for the first time ever privilege. And I know people are very familiar with the term racial privilege. People who don't believe it's a thing probably have a lot of it. What I would share about my experience in Spain and the privilege I had there was very much so rooted in nationality privilege. And because I were, you know, they're probably seen by most of the natives as a tourist, they, an American tourist at that, they really just gave me so much preference over the other students that I worked or or, I'm sorry, lived and went to school with. One was El Salvadorian, the other was Mexican. And 
um, it was very clear that they favored me over those other students. You know, when we would shop in the Plata Mayor, you know, they would say to me, I need you to get your things hurry, you know, purchase your items. Don't you see the security guard following us around? And I'm like, there's no security guard following me. <laughs> so I, I realized very early on in my, you know, life that, man, I know what it's like to be, you know, a white person in America, right? A person who is not experiencing directly these injustices in whatever capacity, small or large, but being completely oblivious to them if they're not happening to you. Um, and that's the kind of, honestly, I've realized, man, this is happening to me over here. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to invalidate their feelings or their experience by no means, but I, I likewise was very careful to not let their experiences taint just this level of bliss that I had there. It was just so, so fulfilling for sure. Um, I jokingly say this, but you all know there's truth to every joke, right? Like if I ever met a romantic interest in Spain, I would have never returned to the States. <laughs> Uh, and here I am. My now 16-year-old daughter, no, 17-year-old daughter, uh, holy smokes, just had a birthday at the time of this recording, uh, wants to study, uh, she actually wants to take a gap year in Spain uh, when she graduates in a year and a half. And uh, she said that, basically she said the same thing. She's like, hey, if I meet someone over there, I may not come back. So, <laughs> Truly, happiest of birthdays to her. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to know a little bit more about just like who you are and, and kind of your evolution uh, to your career to where it is now. Did you happen to stumble on interpretation or did you look at the the profession and say, ooh, I really want to be an interpreter? I became interested in, and this is probably true for, for most of the things that have happened that are manifested in my life. I became interested in interpretation when I realized that interpretation was interested in having me. And by that, I mean, I was working um, at the local zoo in Omaha, Henry Dorley Zoo. It's almost like world at this point. And I was, I love that work. It kept me busy in the summers. Um, I didn't necessarily see a career with it. I thought it was just, you know, some part-time summer employment as a young person headed off to college. But I remember um, being approached by a person, an individual, who worked for the National Park Service at that time and thought, man, you would be a, a wonderful person to come to work for the National Park Service. You know, you get very chatty, checking folks out. Um, people are in the gift shop losing their minds with their littles uh, who are screaming because you took a stuffed animal away and so on. And I just believed in really serving leadership, customer service and, you know, providing individuals with optimal experiences. Uh, and I think that person saw that and kind of recruited me, you know, in a very informal, casual way, got my email address or I got hers. I can't remember. Um, but then I rushed out that Monday. Individuals sent me over their like summer internship. I think at that point it was like a skip application or something like that. I completed it and, oh, it wasn't skip. It was SEA. Uh, it was a student conservation association internship position. Uh, which was the kind of entry way that I navigated into the park service. Um, but I did that. I went on with it, got hired, had some interviews, got hired, um, and then spent a couple of summers working as an SEA intern. And it was just a world that was so unfamiliar to me. Like the territory was just so different to anything I had ever experienced, which kept me so captivated by it. Like I thought to myself, people have lived their lives to do this. Like this is what people like went through school dreaming of doing. 
and it was just baffling to me. And now I'm I'm gonna share a little bit more about me, uh, song as as to your point around your question, getting to know me a little better. I'm a, definitely a city girl, grew up in an urban area, but grew up poverty stricken completely with two parents in my household, both of whom worked more than one job at any given time. Um, I'm the youngest of three kids in a home. All of us pretty bright though. Um, you know, as you know, I've gone to law school. My sister's a doctor. My brother is probably not doing the best that he could do in life right now. <laughs> Hope he doesn't hear this. But, you know, my parents were very intentional <laughs> about making sure we took our education seriously and took advantage of opportunities, even though they were limited in our household. And um, I just remember like in the summers crying about not being able to go to the local Boys and Girls Club. Like we had to go to whatever was free. And at that time, like Sundogs had a scholarship that you could take advantage of in the summer. So we would just walk across the street, participate in that, come home. Um, thereafter, we would bike ride, you know, all the free summer stuff that city kids do. Um, and so when I was introduced to the National Park Service at the young age of 17, I thought, actually, I was 16 that summer. I just couldn't believe it. It was unfathomable to me that people like camped in the summer, that people would go travel for literally three months out of the year, you know, and just around the world. And that was fascinating to me. It was just, it was unreal. And so my experience, the first the first trip I took as an SEA intern was with two of our um, permanent staff at uh, what was then the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, myself and Zing Chang, uh, he was an Asian male who was very pragmatic and was just so business-minded that I could not understand why he was interning for the National Park Service. It made no sense to me. But likewise, he couldn't understand why this urban person uh, who had had a child so young was even interning for the National Park Service. We were both misfits. We called each other that. So we traveled to, oh my God, we traveled to the Badlands in South Dakota. And upon arriving into the park, it's a summer day, the hottest day you could think of. Upon arriving into the park, we just see a, a bison like flopping up and down, jumping up and down, like jumping up and down. And we were just so captivated. We're in the car, we're looking, we're like, oh my God. I'm like, Alvis, do you see that? And uh, they, anyways, Bonnie was there. She was our AO at Lewis and Clark. It was good to have her along. She was like nearing retirement, but she just loved having the interns around. So she came with us up to Badlands. And anyways, we finally saw like a snake just fly in the air like that. And so we realized, oh, the bison was trying to get the snake from coiling around its leg, you know, uh, like a defensive deal, like get off of me sort of deal. That was honestly my introduction to the Park Service. And I spent 13 years thereafter with the, with the agency. Um, so I don't even need to say more. It was just a thrilling experience. Every time I would FaceTime home, FaceTime was just getting popular around that time. My parents couldn't believe the things I was telling them. Um, and so that was like, they were like counting on me, like, tell us more good stuff tomorrow. Let us see, you know, what, you know, I, I never even knew that conservation was a, a career field, um, but it was uh, one that served me well for 13 years and I'm forever grateful. I would be so remiss if I did not acknowledge Alvis Marr, Carol McBryant, in a mini econ, um, the the folks in the park service, Linda Glover, Kimberly Suber, who um, just kind of took me and appreciated me, Carla Sigala, Jill Hamilton, um, who who made sure that my experience in the park service was as optimal as it could possibly be. 
uh, and position me in ways that if not for their leadership, I probably wouldn't last past the summer. Hmm. You're actually dovetailing into uh, the, the, the last question that, that I have for you, um, which is about, you know, that the time that you spent with the park service and, you know, and then transitioning into having your own human relations firm. I'm curious to know between, you know, the time that you spent working within the system and now serving as sort of a consultant advisor to multiple sites and working with interpreters, how have you seen the focus on telling complete inclusive stories change and not just in the National Park Service, but, you know, across sort of interpretive sites in in general, uh, you know, you you were in the field for 13 years, you've worked uh, for this firm since then. So, you know, a decade and a half, close to two decades uh, within the field. How how has that changed? Has the focus on um, telling inclusive stories, telling complete stories uh, changed, uh, you know, from your perspective? I would say, yes, it has changed. And I'm glad you asked this question. So one of the places I worked at, and it, it changed long after, like, my after I exited the the uh, division of interpretation because my last position in the National Park Service I worked as a supervisory park ranger at Andersonville National Historic Site which is the cemetery the site and then the only prisoner of war museum um, and then I worked also in the compliance office for the park service under FOIA but I remember working at the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail I also worked at the Jefferson Memorial Expansion so like the ideas of manifest destiny and Westward expansion remained <laughs> at the forefront of my mind as you asked this question. But um, I remember trying to prepare a talk for uh, Lewis and Clark. And this was going to be a talk to like 84 folks who were out boating one day. And I remember in this interpretive meeting, we were having our leadership saying, you know, my niece asked a good question. I was walking through the visitor center. She stopped me and asked this. I want to address it with you all. And it was it was around telling a complete story around the Lewis and Clark expedition because you would get a lot of folks who would come into the headquarters and try to tell you about Lewis and Clark because a lot of people are well researched, this is their deal, what have you. Um, I found myself just conflicted always when they would tell me that York was not a slave on the expedition <laughs> because they would argue and and they were correct in arguing this. You know, well, he voted, um, you know, well, he got to hold firearms um, and it's like, OK, well, a slave with amenities. My point was, you know. I wanted to say, yes, he did those things and, you know, he still had a structure in place. He was not compensated for the expedition. He did not earn a wage. He wasn't, you know, and so no different than Seaman who, who went along with uh, Clark or I'm sorry, with Lewis was York, who went along with, who received no payment, who was asked to do X, Y, Z, and so on. Um, but I'm, I'm sharing that as just one instance where I saw the National Park Service fall short at one point of not telling the full story, not sharing the full picture. And I think it's honestly perpetuated because most, histori most historians are the ones I encountered there in that space back then uh, were so set on telling one story. But I think the beauty in history and like, interpretation is really sharing all of the story and saying yes york was a slave and he got to vote on the expedition he got to carry firearms on the expedition and i think that that does 
just the mind wonders because we've lived in a binary society for so long where people think it has to be either or. And I will invite anybody to come and set in both and on any day uh, because that is probably the more complete picture of any story that you're telling in uh, across our nation's history, regardless if it's in respect to the Lewis and Clark expedition, the Brown versus Board of Education National Landmark case, or wherever else you may find yourself. Absolutely. Mynesha, thank you so much for being a guest with us today. Really a lot to think about, but also very hopeful, you know, um, which I think is the positive good thing to come out of this. Also, clearly, we all need to go to Spain together. <laughs> clearly. With my daughter, Maya. That's right. That's Mynesha, right. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so much fun to talk to you again. Hey, where can um, people find your firm online? Um, we are at www all of us together co co.com uh, or just by googling all of us together awesome thank you manisha you bet thank you all for having me and interpreters that's, that's what's, what's up, up. <laughs>